Great. Good morning. Um, as Anna said, my name is Rob. Um, I'm part of the leadership team here. Um, it's a privilege to speak uh, with you today. If you're a visitor, um, it's lovely having you with us. Um, we'll be continuing our um, series on Thessalonians. We'll be looking at uh, two Thessalonians today. We looked at one Thessalonians before Christmas and in our Christmas series. So um, if you have a Bible, if you want to start finding uh, two Thessalonians. And just while you're finding that, just a question to sort of kick us off, really. Uh, how are you with maps? Do you like maps? Are you, are you, yeah, love maps. Rob, Rob loves a map. I know Tom does. Um, I think they're a bit like Marmite, aren't they? And I think some people absolutely love them. Some just don't want to go near them. Um, my son, who's just, just gone out, he loves maps. Absolutely does. And um, it's got a bit of a reputation in our family for his love of maps. And uh, whenever we go somewhere as a family, we always kind of, you know, get, you get the little guidebook and the map, and we just give it to him, and then he takes us where we need to go. Um, and I was re reminded uh, of a time when, when he was younger, when we went down to the Eden Project, when we were on holiday down in Cornwall. And um, if you've not been there, it's absolutely massive. Just paths everywhere. And we gave him the map, and we said, we want to go here, and off we went. But this moment, we came to this path, and it was like where five or so paths all merged together. And we stopped, and we kind of thought about it, and we were a little bit kind of, which way now? And Neo was like, that's the way. And I was like, no, I don't think so. I think that's the way. You know, um, I forgot to mention, he was about three at this time. But he said this way, and I was like, no, and I pulled rank, and I was like, I'm dad, we're going this way. You can guess the end of the story. He, we went down this path, and it came to a dead end. I was convinced I was right, but no, we, we went back, I humbly apologized, and he took us down the right path. And we had a, a, a fun rest of the day, but he's never let me live that down. Um, and rightly so, I'm sure he'll, he'll remind me of that forever. Yeah. Um, why do I share that story? Well, Paul wrote to the Thessalonians to encourage them, to guide them. See, he found out that they were, being, they were discouraged and they were at a point where they needed guidance, a bit like that crossroads. You see, we looked at 1 Thessalonians last, uh, last year, um, and scholars are convinced that actually he wrote this second letter very, very soon afterwards, as little as maybe only six months apart, because he'd heard reports that they had got discouraged, that they were doubting, they were confused, and they needed help from him. You see, we'll see this when we get to uh, chapter 2 next week, that there's even a hint of a fake letter that was sent in Paul's name to throw them off course. And so false teaching has got into the church, and instead of having that clear path that Paul has already taught them about, suddenly they're at that point where they're, actually, they're, they're being told, actually, this is the way, this is the way, this is the way. And so they froze, and they contacted Paul, and Paul's wrote to encourage them. And so that's the context of this letter that we're looking at today. Paul is writing to encourage them and get them back on track. So we're going to be looking at uh, this first chapter today. And as I said, he's writing to encourage them. And a major theme in these letters is the second coming, when Jesus returns. In the first letter, it was throughout the whole thing, a common thread through every chapter. And this second letter is no different. It's been suggested that the Thessalonians have been persuaded by this false teaching that the day of the Lord had already come. And so it's no surprise that their faith has taken a knocking. So Paul writes and opens this second letter with an encouragement to just say to them, actually, you're doing better than you think. This is the way we go. So he celebrates all that God has been doing in them. He's going to boast about their endurance in the face of persecution, which they've had since they started. And he's going to go on to reassure them that Christ will return and make things right, that God is just and will be glorified in his believers while bringing an end to the injustice that they're facing. So let's look at the passage. It should come up behind me. 
if you haven't got it. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you uh, who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the Thessalonian church was struggling, and that's why Paul wrote to them. But he doesn't seem to panic, does he? What I want to look at today is how Paul's words bring comfort and encouragement to them in the face of all their confusion and doubts. Paul, in the first letter, described himself like a loving father to them. And so that's what we see now. So he comes as a, as a father figure and as a wise leader, and he knows just what to say to them. So the first few verses are his introduction. But after that, um, he goes on to share with them how pleased he is with them. Notice in this chapter, I don't know if you picked it up, but he doesn't give them any instruction or any commands. He doesn't tell them anything they have to do in this chapter. He doesn't condemn them for their crisis of faith or for having doubts. He doesn't say, why would you believe this? How can you be fooled by that. Instead, he praises them for their achievements and all that's going well. He's not playing, paying lip service to them or trying to make them feel smug, but he's trying to encourage, to, to comfort, to boost their confidence. William Barclay picks up on the power of encouragement in his, in, when he writes on this, this chapter. He says, the praise of those we love does not make us proud. It makes us humble. Paul knew that wise praise never makes a man rest on his laurels, but fills him with a desire to do better still. And I can certainly relate to that. When someone encourages me, it doesn't make me just sit down and think, okay, job done. It makes me think, okay, I'm going to go again. And that's what Paul's trying to do here by saying, actually, you're doing well. Let's keep going. Paul is so pleased that he says he thanks God for them. He says it's right to thank God because it's God, after all, who's at work in them. And I thought it was really great what Andy shared today. Um, it's hard to act to follow what Andy shared about um, all those uh, men and women in the Bible that God used. And so Paul is encouraging them. Actually, God is using you. He's at work in you. After all, it's only by the grace of God that they were saved and found faith. And it's by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit that God will continue to work in their lives. We know that the Christian life begins when we declare Jesus as Lord and Savior. But it's a li lifelong relationship afterwards, isn't it? As we grow and mature in him and become more Christ-like. 
So Paul says he's pleased about three specific things, faith, love, and endurance. But he's not just celebrating that they have faith or that they have love, but actually, I don't know if you picked it up, he's celebrating that their faith is growing abundantly, that their love is increasing, that in the face of difficulties, they are steadfast and continue to endure. I think it's interesting, in the first book, in the first letter to the Thessalonians, Paul picks up on exactly the same things. In Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1, he says, We give thanks to God always for you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, the labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So what an encouragement it would have been to them that Paul wrote again and picked up on the same things and reminded them, actually, you are still walking in God, but more than that, you're growing, and God is increasing these things. Because after all, that's what we expect to see, isn't it, in the Christian life, growth and increase. Throughout this letter, Paul is getting alongside the church saying, don't be discouraged. Chin up, you're on track. You might not be fitting this way about yourselves, but we can see, I can see how you're growing. It reminds me a bit of a scene in one of my favorite movies, Top Gun. Anyone else have that as a favorite? The, ah, the first one. Yeah, the second one is fantastic. But last week, we actually as a family watched the first one. I kind of insisted that I made my son watch it. And um, probably more for me. But there's a scene, I don't know if you, how well you know the film, but in the, in the, the very beginning of the first film, there's a part where Tom, Garn in one, sorry, Tom, Tom Cruise in one jet and another jet go off to, to, sort of, uh, to check some enemy planes that are at sea. And um, there's a moment when they come under attack and the other pilot gets spooked. He comes under threat and gets scared and he freezes and he panics. And then from then on, he just he loses confidence. He can't see the way forward, he can't fly straight, can't see straight. And it's at that point when Tom Cruise comes to the rescue, doesn't he? And he flies up alongside him and he guides him back to the uh, aircraft carrier. And he can't fly the plane for him, but he gets alongside and says, come on, you can do it, you can do it, you're on track. And that's what this reminds me of. For me personally, I know that I couldn't be where I am today if it wasn't for numerous uh, people getting alongside me in the faith and saying, come on, you can do it, and encouraging and supporting, praying, challenging as well. And that's why being part of a church community is so important, isn't it? Because we can't do this alone. It's like hot coals on a fire. They they burn hottest when they're piled together and close, don't they? But if you've ever seen one coal fall fall away, it goes cold very quickly. And that's why being encouraged by each other is so important. I'm sure we can all relate to struggling, feeling discouraged, facing difficult times, perhaps like the Thessalonians, facing persecution, rejection, or being mocked for being a Christian. And what can really help is to focus again on what God has done and what God is continuing to do and the promises he has for you. We can take encouragement from scriptures. I'm sure you have a favorite scripture. I encourage you to go back to it. Other scriptures like these are a great place to get encouragement from. Philippians 1, For I am sure that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jeremiah 29, the popular verse, God knows the plans he has for you, a future and a hope. Psalm 139, You are fearfully and wonderfully made. 2 Corinthians 12, God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in weakness. So I encourage you to come back to the scripture when you're feeling discouraged. But like Paul, we have a part to play here in this church to get alongside one another, to comfort, encourage, to build up. So my first challenge today is, who can you encourage this week? 
Never underestimate the power of your words to build others up. Paul challenged us in 1 Thessalonians 5, encourage one another, build one another up. The writer of the Hebrews says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. I'd like to move on and look at prayer now. I think it's interesting to note in this passage how Paul frames his thanksgiving and encouragement, and more importantly, to whom he's thankful. See, they're actually prayers, and he's proud to share them with the church, again, as an encouragement to them. So he starts at the beginning by thanking God for them, and then he comes back to the end to, to pray for them. It's like a prayer sandwich, a prayer at the beginning, prayer at the end, and I'll, I'll promise I'll get to the meat of the sandwich in a minute. See, it begins by thanking God for all that they're doing. They're increased, they're growing love, they're growing faith, they're increasing love. And then he brings prayers of intercession. He's praying for them that God would continue still to work in them even more. Why? Because, as he said in 12, that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you. That's why he prays for more and more, so that God would get the glory. Again, what an encouragement to know that Paul is praying for them. Paul's letters are full of prayers to the church, aren't they? And he encourages the, the church to pray, and as should we. Emmy reminded us when she looked at 1 Thessalonians 5, that well-known verse, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances. And this ties in nicely with uh, what, Paul sh- uh, sorry, what Sai shared last week on Vision Sunday, that he was encouraging us to be a church that's full of the Spirit, a church that sees fruits, and a church that prays. I certainly can relate to um, the comfort it is to know that people are praying. Um, if you're new here, you might not know about this, but about two years ago, um, our daughter Eve, she slipped just outside the door and hit her head on the floor. And at the time, we didn't think it was that bad. But she went downhill very quickly. She actually had concussion, and within the hour, we'd called paramedics, and she'd been rushed to hospital. She was so bad that they sedated her and put her on a ventilator. You know, and all she'd done, she'd hit her head on the floor. They were so concerned at the hospital, they sent her to, to a hospital in London. I think, I think it's still, for me, it's one of the most traumatic moments as, as a father, seeing your daughter in that state in hospital. But we call people to pray. And I contacted Sai, and he rallied the church to pray. We called our friends, and they, they prayed, and they told their churches to pray. And we just were then just flooded with messages saying, our church is praying for you, our church is praying for you. And I can't really describe fully the comfort of knowing that literally hundreds of people were praying over those days for us as a family and praying for healing. And Eve made what I believe was a miraculous recovery. Within a few days, she was sent home from the hospital and not a single uh, after effect. So God certainly answered those prayers for us. I've noticed recently in this church that there's been a lot, uh, an increase in people um, sending out WhatsApp messages within the groups to ask for prayer. And that's what we should be doing as a church. And it's such a, a joy to see message after message ping up saying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. So let's enc- I want to encourage you, let's do more of that. Um, yesterday at the call, um, again, I was so encouraged. The group of men I was sitting with, we shared our lives and said, actually, can you pray for this? And there's something so powerful about standing with each other and praying alongside each other. So we can support and lift one another up in prayer. As Paul encourages in Ephesians 6, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. 
With this in mind, be alert with all perseverance, making supplication, that's prayer, for all the saints. You know, as leaders, we're so thankful for every one of you, and we pray together about you regularly. But you know what? We pray for even more still, because we want God to be glorified. So the challenge is, who are you praying for here? Who are you thanking God for? Let's be like Paul and pray for others in the church. Let's firstly thank God for what we see him doing, but let's pray for even more that he's glorified in their lives. And if there's anything you want prayer for, please ask. Ask someone in your life group. Ask someone you're with. Contact us as leaders. Come forward at the end. Don't put it off. Let's get prayer. So Paul opens up this letter with encouragement, and he's celebrating all that God is doing in their lives. And then he moves on in verse 5 to go further to say that these things, faith, love, and endurance, are evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that they may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. So for the rest of this this time this morning, I'd like to just focus on what this righteous judgment will look like, and how is it an encouragement, and what comfort can we take from it? I'm going to put out a number of short points and go through them, Um, and Sai will be speaking more on the second coming next week as well. So firstly, assurance of salvation. Paul encourages them that their lives display evidence of their salvation, that they are part of God's kingdom. He makes it clear that this judgment will lead to two groups of people, those who are part of the kingdom and those who are not. And similarly, God's judgment will lead to two eternal outcomes, one of glory and one of destruction. Paul wrote to reassure the Thessalonians that their salvation and future hope in Christ is secure. But this passage also shows a a sober warning to us that not everyone will be saved. And that leads me on to the next point of faith in Christ. Paul makes it clear that faith in Christ is what matters when judgment comes. Jesus said in the well-known verse in John 3, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And in John 5, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. This faith is a belief in the gospel that salvation is only available through Christ. This judgment, therefore, will depend on, not on what we've done, our successes, our failures, uh, what we've done well, whether we're good, whether we're religious. It's about knowing God and being known by him. It's all about a relationship with him. That's what will matter. So here, Paul is encouraging the Thessalonian church that their lives show evidence of this relationship. It's not their works, but their faith. They are, he says they're considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And that word worthy can also be translated as declared or counted worthy. So if you're in Christ and you face difficult times, take comfort in knowing that God has declared you worthy. Not because you've earned it, because we can't, but Christ has earned it. So to the Thessalonians and to us, this judgment should be a source of comfort. It should be a source of assurance that by faith we can have confidence that God knows us and receives us into his kingdom now and fully when he returns. And that's the eternal life that he promises. And that's my next point. Jesus promises eternal life to all who believe in him. What's that look like? Well, Tim Keller asked the question, what hope does everlasting life have for us? And I thought his his answer was really interesting. He says that that we will enjoy God forever. 
He reminds us that God is triune God, so Father, Son, and Spirit, and together they've been glorifying, delighting, adoring, and loving one another for all time. Therefore, he reminds us that God is, has infinite joy, and in eternal life, we will get to share this joy forever. Take comfort in that. My next point is that Christ will return to judge. Paul is very clear in this passage that it is Christ himself who will carry out this judgment. As it says in verse 7, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven. This is the second coming. To the Corinthians, Paul wrote about this too. He said, we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be received what is due for what he's done in the body, whether good or evil. And likewise, in, uh, Peter said in Acts 10, Jesus is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. We also see in this passage that we are promised that relief will come to God's people. Uh, Paul paints two extreme pictures here when this judgment comes. Two futures that are infinitely opposite. There is no third option in between. To the believers, Paul says that God will grant relief from persecution and affliction. But to those persecuting the church, God will repay with affliction. That word relief um, is relief from tension. The original word was used to signify the slacking of a bow. So if you've ever tried archery, you'll know how hard it is to hold that bow taut. And God's saying that actually the relief I will give you will be so extremely different from that tension. Again, to the Thessalonians who faced constant persecution in hard times, this would have brought comfort. Paul wants to remind them that in the face of trials and persecution, that one day Christ returns, he will make things all right. That they will be face to face with God for all eternity and again will never face uh, suffering and pain again. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So let's take comfort from that. Whatever we face in this life, God promises a time of rest. Amen? We also see see in this passage that vengeance is God's. It shows that God will deal with those who persecute the believers. Paul writes that God will bring relief to those who are afflicted, but instead afflict those who cause the harm. He says that believers will be in the presence of God, that they will get to see him face to face. It says that his glory will be like a mirror, like a mirror image. We will see him face to face and that his glory will be in us. But to the unbelievers... They will suffer punishment. This punishment is eternal destruction away from God, separated from his presence and his glory. In Romans 12, Paul takes Moses' word from Deuteronomy, reminding us that it is God who avenges. And Paul adds to it and says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Isn't it reassuring to know that we can and should leave it to God? We can trust that he will deal injustice for us. But let's be honest, it's quite hard to to relate to, isn't it? We don't really face persecution as we read here. But in many parts of the world, let's not forget that many Christians do face persecution in a very real way and suffer greatly. I was reading an article recently about this, and it was just very frank that that even now, across the world, Christians are killed, abducted, sexually harassed, physically and mentally abused, and have their homes and businesses attacked because they are a Christian. 
According to the article, they approximately, well, they guess that approximately 360 million Christians worldwide today are living in nations with high levels of persecution and discrimination. That's about one in seven of Christians around the world. So this is very real to many people. As Kevin DeYoung explains, this is a hard doctrine when you don't have enemies. But it's far more palatable when your enemies are with swords against you and your family for being Christian. When the world hates you, the return of the righteous judge is unspeakable comfort. So let's continue to pray for the persecuted church around the world. It's argued by some that perhaps this punishment is not eternal, but simply the end of an unbeliever's physical or spiritual life. This view, sometimes known as um, annihilation, I, I always get that word, annihilation, there we go. Um, they, that view is that Christians may go on to have eternal life with God, but for unbelievers, their life will suddenly stop and they will no longer exist. But this passage doesn't allow for that argument. Paul describes it as an eternal destruction. And Jesus was very clear about this too. In Matthew 25, Jesus describes final judgment. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne and he will gather before him all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He goes on to say he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And the sheep on the right, that's the believers, Jesus says they will inherit the kingdom of God. And to the left, the unbelievers, Jesus will say, depart from me. And Jesus said those will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So believers can take comfort knowing that they will enjoy a glorious eternity with God, while unbelievers, and particularly in this passage, the, those who are persecuting the Thessalonians, they will suffer eternal punishment, banished away from God and all his goodness. Morris describes this destruction as complete ruin, the loss of all that makes life worth living. While Calvin describes this destruction as destruction without end, an undying death. But we also see in this passage that God is just. See, some argue that it's simply unfair. How can a loving God punish in this way? But Paul's actually arguing the opposite. He says that this judgment, in fact, shows that God is just in his actions. After all, we all want to see justice, don't we, in the world? When someone wrongs us, we want to see justice done. Um, a few years ago, I got to do a jury service over in Lewis. Um, and for me, it was the first time I'd ever been in a court and to see the criminal justice system up close. I was able to be a part of uh, a number of cases as a juror, and a few of them led to convictions. The evidence against them was clear, and they were found guilty. And I remember, one, the judge handed out a sentence of many years to the one man. I remember feeling at the time that that wasn't a pleasant experience. It wasn't enjoyable at all. But at the same time, it was clearly the right outcome. That person, uh, for what they had done, and the laws they had broken, was found guilty and punished accordingly. Do we argue that that's unfair and unjust? No, we don't. If the punishment will fit, fits the crime. What is unjust is when someone gets away with it, when someone doesn't get punished for their wrongdoing. They're let off even though the evidence is stacked against them. See, God can't uh, overlook sin. And all sin, it says in the Bible, is rebellion against him. Jesus said, whoever denies me, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven, Matthew 10. So those who reject Christ, Christ 
will reject when he returns. But there is hope. Hallelujah. For Christ has already come once to stand in our place to take the punishment that we deserved. He died on the cross and, separate, and was separated from the Father in death so that we would never be. That's how he demonstrated his love and mercy for us. Peter writes about the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly in 2 Peter 3. He says this, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So how should we respond? Well, we can take comfort that knowing God is merciful, slow to anger, abounding in love. Let's not lose hope for those who are so far have rejected the gospel, but let's continue to pray for them and take opportunities to share the gospel with them. And if you're not a Christian here today, then God doesn't want you to perish, but instead he invites you to repent and believe so that you can be part of his kingdom. If you are here today and you've not made a commitment to Christ and you'd like to now, I'd just like to read a prayer with you if you'd like to pray it with me and I'd love to um, chat with you more at the end. So if you'd like to be part of God's kingdom, just pray this prayer along with me now. It says, Lord Jesus Christ, I'm sorry for the things I have done wrong in my life. Please forgive me. I now turn from everything that I know is wrong. Thank you that you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven and set free. Thank you that you offer me forgiveness and the gift of your spirit. I now receive that gift. Please come into my life by your Holy Spirit to be with me forevermore. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Amen. If you did pray that prayer, I'd love to chat with you at the end. and love to give you a copy of the Why Jesus booklet that helps you find out more about the Christian faith. Can I invite the worship, worship bank back up, please? So just as I close, just like to summarize, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians is one of encouragement and comfort. He's there to guide them and get them back on track. And his words are for us too. If you've put your faith in Christ, God is with you and he's at work in you. Christ will come again and deal with any injustice and make all things right. God has a glorious and eternal future for every one of you, where you will dwell in his presence forever. But we have a part to play in supporting and encouraging one another, and we're called to pray for one another too. And I just want to close by reading a, a section from uh, the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, if you've not come across catechisms, they're a set of questions and answers that help us um, understand more about the Christian faith. And one of the questions says this, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? And this is the answer. In all distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Amen? Amen. Can I encourage you to stand? I'd love to pray, and then we'll finish with a time of worship. Father God, thank you that you are the greatest encourager. We thank you that in Christ we know that you have got a glorious future for us. We thank you 
that when we put our faith in you, we can be assured that you will be with us forevermore and we will be with you. Father God, I pray, Lord, in those times when we are struggling, I pray, God, we would come back to you, that we would hold on to the promises that you have already spoken over us. We thank you that you will make all things right one day. We thank you, Lord, that one day there will be no more suffering and pain for us. We thank you that we will dwell in your very presence, face to face. Father God, we pray for those who do not yet know you and who have not accepted you. Father God, we pray that you would win their hearts, that by your spirit you would convict them of their rebellion against you and that you would bring them into your kingdom. Father God, I pray that we as a church would grow in our love and our faith, that you would help us to endure. And pray, God, that you would help us to be a church who encourage one another, like coals on a fire, Lord, help us to stay hot together and to encourage and to build up one another. Father God, may we be a church who pray for one another and rally together in difficult times. Father God, we thank you that you are with us in all those times too. Amen.